Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer of the show, Colin Morgan, and today we are joined by Miles Faulkner, who built his company Blended Perspectives to roughly $30 million in revenue before selling it in 2022 to Contagix for a substantial sum. But before we get there, Later in this episode, you're going to hear him refer to a change of ownership clause. Now, this could be a hidden bomb inside one of your contracts, which could go off when selling your business, and you'll want to avoid this at all costs. So to learn how, head over to our show notes page at Built to Sell Radio, where I've added some more information to show you how to avoid that clause. Okay, so now let me tell you a little bit more about today's guest, Miles Faulkner, who, as I mentioned, started Blended Perspectives. Now, as you're listening to today's episode, there's a few things I want you to look out for. The first being how to enhance the appeal of your company for a potential acquire, how to determine the optimal time to sell your business, how to leverage a forecasting technique to boost the value of your company, how to differentiate your business from your competitors, how to steer clear of a common legal error that can impede or terminate a deal, and how to effectively communicate the sale of your company to your employees, drawing inspiration from Brad Pitt's character in Moneyball. Here to share with you the full story of how he sold his business in 2022 is Miles Faulkner. Enjoy. Miles Faulkner, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah, so tell me about blended perspectives. I'd like you to explain this company and what you did as if I were a 12-year-old. Okay. Yeah, sure. It, we were um, a, 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 what we call a dedicated reseller uh, and consultancy. The Atlassian products that we reset sold were software, as well as the Atlassian private cloud solution. And we did a got it. So Atlassian, I've heard of Atlassian. I, I forgive me, I don't know much about it. They have things like Jira. That's right. And is is there's another product called like Contagion or something? Confluence. Confluence. That's right. And these are like for big companies who have like super complicated processes. They they use these products to manage projects and processes so that they get done quickly and on time. Is that? Am I getting that? Roughly right, or yes, it's 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 that's some of it. You know, they are very big on teams. Uh, you know, their actual uh, stock uh, symbol is team, and so the the goal of Atlassian is to provide you know software solutions for every team. Um, and where they sort of really started off was sort of what we call bug tracking, and um, the software was built. Uh, Jira was built in such a way that it's very easy to to configure it and and be able to support any any process really. Um, we 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 sold a number of solutions which which didn't involve uh, uh, support or tr- tracking of bugs and that kind of thing. But where it really sort of took off was uh, in the agile development world and. Uh, for the for the listeners uh, who who aren't too familiar with agile, agile is a different way to go about uh, implementing software or really anything. And that agile is about uh, a more scientific view of what a team can produce 
So instead of a stage gate type methodology where there's different phases like requirements and then the build stage and the implementation stage, you would actually do a small piece of work over say 10 days. You would see how the team performed, what the velocity of that team is. And then you would, then you would say, well, okay, we've got 10, 10 more of those that we're gonna to need to do. And so it's very much about um, a joint uh, team-based understanding of what it takes to build software and it's much more accurate. And really all large corporations today have adopted Agile in one form or another. And to give you a sense of the scale of Atlassian and its success, 70% of all Agile teams in the world today run on Jira. And um, hmm. they have some 250,000 customers now. Um, you know, a company like ServiceNow, who you may have heard of, has only 7,500 customers. The sister product to Jira is Confluence, and Confluence is a, a wiki product. Uh, so instead of storing your files in a traditional folder system, you basically create documents in the wiki and it's, it, it complements the, the, the Jira software project management style. Um, they have also recently moved into the service desk space um, and have very successfully, uh, you know, gone into that area and they have some 35,000 customers. Blended wow. perspective. And so Atlassian, Atlassian is, the, is the company's product which your business, Blended Perspectives, uh, was reselling effectively. And a lot of our listeners, although aren't into technology in any way, but they will get the idea of distributing someone else's product. They could be a, you know, a manufacturer they, or they could be a distributor. And they kind of get this idea of if you're a distributor, someone else does the making and they do the selling and effectively the selling and the implementation. So you're, you're as I understand it, uh, using these products the Atlassian portfolio, Jira and Confluence as sort of raw material in a solution for a client. Am I getting that correct? That's right. And in fact, Atlassian, one of Atlassian's great strengths in its early days uh, was that it consciously focused all, all, all of its efforts on R&D and had no salespeople um, and had no consultants. So they were very, very enthusiastic to, to bring on board partners and I think, you know, if only I'd known earlier in my career, you know, how, how successful and, and frankly, relatively easy it was to be successful with them, you know, I would have started earlier. But we, we, we got going and, and Atlassian is very, very supportive of their, of their solution partners. Yeah. So tell me, tell me how you joined the business, because I understand uh, there's a guy named Martin Cleaver, and we were talking offline about about Martin, who was doing some some work in this space. Mm -hmm. How did it come about that that you joined up with Martin? What? Just tell me that story. Yeah, so um, I was doing large programs. So my my background is, uh, you know, I was a partner at Ernst and Young, um, and um, then I went out on my own um, when when they sold the business. Um, uh, the consulting business, and I went on my own and, and ran large programs. I was doing a program for one of the major banks in Toronto, and I came across Jira as part of you know uh, as part of that exercise, and I realized the potential of the software to to enable us to solve a range of different problems, and we were doing it very successfully. Yeah, it was quite remarkable. 
And um, it just so happened that this bank was also the uh, sponsor of the Atlassian user group meeting in Toronto. Uh, and Martin was at one of the meetings and I went to it. I was more of the JIRA guy on the project management side. And Martin was the Confluence wiki guy, um, had a, a big reputation and following in the wiki space. And uh, he, he, he was really, you know, to compliment and to round out the offering, he really needed a, a, a JIRA guy, you know, to come on board. And also somebody who really understood agile and program management. Uh, so, so we sort of teamed up. We had a couple of false starts, mm -hmm. you know, in between large programs. I, uh, I kept going at it. <laughs> uh, we kept working with Atlassian. The nice thing is that because Jira is everywhere, you know, it was really a decision based on um, which partner to use. And, and at that stage, you know, there were a couple of big partners in Canada, uh, but they were, uh, they were pretty busy. And so we got into a, one of the big banks uh, and they selected us to, uh, to be their partner. And the way that the, the, the software, the, the model works is that we buy the software from the vendor, the OEM. And we resell it to the customer. But what's very nice about this arrangement is that uh, we, we can sell the software to the customer for less than the retail price. And the retail price with Alassian is very uh, obvious. Um, um, They're not uh, hiding at all what the cost of the software is. And what that meant was uh, that customers could readily see, yeah, oh, I can buy it for less for miles. And he's giving me service to look after this product and figure out what, what it is that I need. So yeah, I'm going to do business with Miles. How much of a margin did, did you get? So if, if Atlassian's price on their website is like $100 yeah. for a widget, uh, what would you buy it from Atlassian for? I can't for? comment on that. Uh, it's, it's just, but let's just say that it's sufficient and very sufficient. And depending on the nature of the, the offering, so for instance, to move all the server customers over to cloud, which is what they wanted to do, they were offering incredible margins for us. Got it. In many respects, the way we treated this was that the software business and the margins were our form of venture capital. You know, we didn't ever have to go into debt to grow the business uh, because we offered, we, we, we were successful. We had over 120 customers uh, when, when I sold the business, Pr pretty well all of corporate Canada. Um, you know, these were well-known customers such as Rogers Cable Systems, the largest cable provider. Yeah, yeah the, that's not going to mean a lot to a lot of our listeners outside of Canada. So, but 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 I, I suffice to say, big Fortune 500 type companies sure. were using the product. That's right. so let's just go. I just want to go back to the cash flow for a second. So, the margin you can't speak to, but suffice to say, it was healthy. In particular, to move from premise to cloud, there were extra incentives and so forth. I get that. How did the cash move? So, let's say you mentioned you buy the the product from Atlassian and then you resell it to the client. Um, just walk me through the cash. So when, when you say you buy it, does, would Atlassian give you terms? Do they give you 60 days so you, they effectively float the implementation or do you have to pay upfront, implement, and then get paid by the, the actual client? Just walk me through the cash model. Yeah, so it's been a while, but uh, you have to be an, first of all, you have to be a, a, a partner of, of, of stature. Right. So uh, for instance, I believe that only platinum partners or, or a certain level of partner uh, get get the terms that, that I'm about to explain to you. That's helpful. Atlassian gives you 30 days, so they'll release the software keys to the customer. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. um, you know, they'll then send us a bill. Um, we we will send the customer a bill, and then we got to get the money from the customer in thirty days, or we have to float the deal. Um, By and large, our customers were good, <laughs> but but there was one customer, a government uh, business, a government that claim to have lost the check. It's always the, the government guys that pay the worst. I don't know what it is. It's all, whenever I ask about AR, like nightmares, it's mm-hmm. always the government division that, that like, that strings out the business for like months. So tell me the story. How long yeah. did the government take you to pay? Yes. Well, in the end, it uh, took somewhere close to 90 days and it was, it was over a million dollars. Now, you know, Alassian is usually very uh, strict about this 30 days. But, you know, we'd been doing business with them for many years. And um, frankly, we explained to them, you know, this was the situation uh, that it was a government that, you know, that they will pay. Um, and um, they were very kind to us. You know, they didn't, they didn't, ch- they didn't bill us. They just said, look, keep an eye on it. Just, um, which goes along with this idea of, you know, we were, we were fortunate that we'd found a, a software company that, that was such a, a, a nice outfit. As Atlassian. Um, yeah, yeah, sounds like it. So walk me through uh, the legal structure of how you, you, you set things up with Martin, because you, you met at the conference, you're pitching for this work. Did it, in the early days, was it like a, like your, your sole proprietary and his sole proprietary, like kind of partnered up to create a, like a comprehensive system, or did you actually legally incorporate a company together? Yes, we, we did. We did incorporate we did incorporate the company. It was it was sort of incorporated already, um, but we we firmed things up with a shareholder agreement. Uh, so How did you split the equity? Uh, again, probably a bit confidential. Um, let's just say that that Martin was the pri- initially Martin was the primary shareholder, but we had a plan which we documented as to how we become fifty fifty shareholders. Uh, so I had the. I had opt-in rights over periods of time to to pay the mark pay Martin for the for 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 the market value, and we had the company you know assessed by a proper assessment person, and um and so it was a smooth process. So uh, you know um, you know Martin took a mature attitude to this because he he was well aware that you know I I had much more experience business experience having run a consultancy having managed large complex environments. Um, and so I think, you know, Martin had a, a mature un- a belief in, in this and he ended up, I ended up, you know, paying him for the, for the balance of the equity and um, which really was a very fair and equitable arrangement. When you say the balance of the equity to top you up to 50%. That's right. Got it. And and this is really helpful because, again, a lot of our listeners would have considered, and we talked offline about this a little bit, this idea of bringing in a more seasoned executive, bringing in a partner, bringing in someone who could really turbocharge their business. And so I'm, I want to dig in a little bit more on, on how the structure was to the extent that you're, you're able to share. But my understanding is what is you had, you, you, you had the rights to purchase up to 50% of the shares at a predetermined, was it a predetermined price or a predetermined multiple uh, of the revenue of the company or of the profit of the company? We, we, just, we just said we'll get a professional valuation firm to, 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 to at an appropriate time come up with a number. We would 
agree we agreed with the numbers and that was it that was that uh, and and when did you exercise that right was there a time limit on that right or was it in perpetuity uh i don't recall there being a time limit on it uh there was obviously from my perspective an urgency uh because i didn't want the company to be <laughs> too too valuable by the time I, yeah. I, I i bought in you know and i think martin understood that you know, from my perspective, it was only fair if I was doing, you know, a fair amount of the work to, to grow the business, uh, you know, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I, yeah, that's, that's for sure. Some, you know, people in your situation and maybe, maybe this is something you considered would have said, well, do I really need Martin? I mean, I'm the one who's run, I was the partner at Ernst Young. I've done all this stuff. Who's this kid with the wiki thing? Like, why don't I just do it on my own? And, and like, did that ever cross your mind? And, and if so, like, take me through your thought process of not doing that. Uh, yeah. So, you know, um, of course, you know, I, I think over time I, I played a larger role in the business. That's true. Um, Martin did, you know, step back, but, but, you know, um, I, I talked to a lot of people and I, I, I know that, you know, we were so busy growing the company and it was so, so moving very quickly. Uh, Martin's a, a lovely fellow, you know, I, I've always enjoyed working with him. He didn't, you know, interfere very much with, with, with the business. Uh, it was very encouraging. I, I, I felt, you know, uh, again, you know, I was lucky to have 50% of this thriving, fantastic business. I spoke to quite a few different people who told me horror stories of, you know, buyouts and, and forced, you know, exits and, and so forth. And I just felt that it was better to be just flying along and, and, and being, being successful, you know, it was working. It was a great formula for us. Uh, you know, Martin's really very much a part of the fabric of the company. So we just didn't, didn't make a change. We just kept sailing along. How did his role evolve as you grew? In the early days, you were very much connected. I, I, I just, I, I looked at his LinkedIn profile before our call. He lists himself as, I think, I, th I want to say he might list himself as co-CEO between 2017 and 2020, and then not after 20, 2020. Uh, no. I think he dropped that. Did, did, was that a formal thing? Like, how did his role sort of evolve? Yes, uh, well, he, 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 more he, more he and I were co-CEOs up, up till then. I would have said, you know, he, he'd stepped a fair bit back even mm -hmm. in that time. And then he, he played much more of a silent role in 21, 22, 23. And, you know, we, we, that we, we, had, we had grown into, you know, a, a pretty, pretty complex, fast-moving um, operation. Uh, Fina our finances, you know, uh, needed professional help. Uh, so we, we just, you know, Martin sort of stepped back um, as his chief strategy officer Mm -hmm. And, you know, whenever I needed to make, we needed to make big decisions around things like corporate taxes, corporate structure and everything else, Martin was always fully involved. Makes sense. Tell me about the decision to launch the Mars product, because a lot of people in a distributor business model, uh, 
you know, they, they tend to attract very low multiples because acquirers look at them and say, well, there's no point of differentiation. I could just go, you know, go direct and pick up all those clients if I just lowered the price. And so they tend to be very poorly valued business. But I understand part of why you launched Mars was to make blended perspectives on its own right a valuable business. Make me walk me through that thinking. Yeah. Yeah. We had we actually had two uh, pieces of intellectual property. One was called Synthesis, which I can I can discuss also if you're interested as a follow-up. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, you know, in the reseller business, uh, you know, we there were a number of companies like ourselves, we pretty well all did the same thing, you know, talked about how Jira was great, but, but actually the customer didn't need to be sold on Jira. They needed to be sold on why us. And so we, uh, one of the things that's interesting about Jira is, and, and Confluence, they're actually platforms. So in, in many respects, the reason why you buy an iPhone is because of all those apps that are available, right. To download on your iPhone. Uh, you you don't say to yourself, "Oh, uh, I, I don't like the iPhone because it, I, I because of all these apps." You say, "I like the iPhone because of all the apps," and the same is true of Atlassian. So Jira has uh, a marketplace, um, and um, again, Atlassian were very very clever. They said, "Let's let, have other people build all the functionality to run on this app. We don't need to do that." So they saved a lot of money that way, but added functionality to the app. And there were some somewhere in the region of fifteen hundred apps, or was it three thousand? Might have been three thousand apps and twelve hundred vendors. So it was a very very busy marketplace. And uh-huh. and again, you could go to that uh, and download those apps, or you could buy those apps through us. One of the things we 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 learned from our customers was that they were a bit frustrated because they didn't know which app they needed for what thing. Or they downloaded the first app they found that did what they wanted it to do. And there was no strategic kind of value to it, uh, thinking. So we looked at this marketplace and we realized it was open. (laughs) So there's an API that you can go in and just grab data. Uh, But because all the pages are public, um, you can actually, you can extract that data. Uh, So basically what we did was we, we, we hired a programmer to go and gather all that data on a, on, a, on a consistent basis. And we did it, we started back in 2020, or it might've been 2019. And we started collecting this information and, and putting it in our own database. And we, we were able to do some very interesting things that had, didn't, we weren't aware of before we started the process. So I think when you get into something like this, it's only then that you start to see the opportunities. What we realized was that, you know, let's say there's a category of apps that's uh, time report, uh, t- time sheets. Pretty straightforward. You would think that apps that you uh, type in time sheets as a category and up comes all those timesheet apps. Well, it turns out that the sure. way that Atlassian categorized all these apps is by al- allowing the vendors to self-categorize. So what they were doing was they were Every every app was in every category. <laughs> so basically, no hundred different apps that had nothing to do with timesheets would come up when you typed in timesheets. So we recategorized all the apps above five hundred instances ourselves to create our own categories. So a customer could then literally come to us and say, "I help me with timesheets, which is the give me the data on timesheets. Who's a winner? Who's a loser? All this sort of stuff." So we did that. Um, then what, what happened was we, we started 
just using it as a, as a marketing vehicle, which was also very, very successful. So we would we 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 wow. trademarked uh, Mars and as an image because Mars stands for market marketplace analytics research service. We that that Mars has been trademarked by chocolate companies, you know, you name it. But the image itself that we created, we could trademark. So we trademarked that, and then we just had the top ten fast moving apps as a as a as a post or. A, you know, who are the winners and losers in the app marketplace or there's a consolidation taking place. Appfire's bought another app. And 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 we did all of that and we started at mentioning all the vendors who then all became our best friends because they loved it. And so it really took off. And um, you know, Contigix is continuing on with it as a as a standalone, almost a standalone marketing vehicle because it's just been phenomenally successful. And when somebody thinks I love the thought of blended perspectives. And why would we be a better partner than somebody else? We can say, well, because we can, we, we've got Mars, like we have the history. We, 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 we can really guide you uh, forward. And what was synthesis? Synthesis. So let's just step back and talk a little bit about Jira. So Jira is a sort of very configurable workflow driven tool. You can set stages up and, and information changes. You know, when a ticket is open, it's closed. Those are the examples, you know, just a couple of the workflow stages. Um, what we realized uh, at some point, uh, you know, in the evolution of the company was that we were, we were doing sort of standard consulting jobs. So we, were, um, we, we would do a standard agile engagement or we would do a service desk engagement or we would do um, uh, a governance risk and compliance uh, uh, solution the same issue types uh like risk as an issue type or um a deliverable might be an issue type um for um, rogers uh, cable company and for others we built a, a portfolio and project management solution we templatized the whole thing so we actually and we didn't just templatize it we actually built it as a generic um, solution um, that that we could start with a customer uh, and say okay Let's just imagine you're doing risk management and you want to track your risks. Instead of saying to you, to you as a customer, do you um, tell me what you want to record in your risk record? We would say, okay, we've already built this risk record. This is what it looks like. Check all, all the fields. <laughs> Which ones do you want to change? So we were able to yeah, then yeah. use agile implementation to change something that was already manufactured as opposed to sort of a, a clean sheet. Um, and, yeah. and it really did accelerate our solutions. And again, uh, much more, a lot of intellectual property um, around, around that. So we, we drove- How did this- you protect that IP? In, how did you protect the IP in synthesis? Um, how did we protect it? I mean, it, it, it's, it's, I guess it's one of those things that technically isn't all that protectable. I would say the volume of it, um, the volume of it was quite substantial because what we were doing was every consulting engagement that we did, we would- we would essentially um, use whatever the learnings were from those engagements and, and, and put them into our offering. And, and so I would say also that it's very difficult to catch a moving train. Um, the, uh, you know, because, because we had like 25 or 30 professional staff who were constantly working on engagements, constantly updating synthesis, you, you know, we were always, always going to be one step ahead of everybody else. 
Take me through your thinking around launching the IP, in particular the Mars product and synthesis. It sounds like in the beginning, it was a way to differentiate yourselves as a reseller of Jira than just you know a generic reseller of Jira. This was a way to differentiate what you did and win business that you may not have gotten from someone who's just looking for a Jira implementation company. Is that, am I getting that yes, correct? Uh, it's, it's difficult to say sometimes why you win um, a, big, a big, uh, big customer. You know, we were only 40 people uh-huh. and we weren't an international name like an Accenture or somebody else. So why would a company, you know, uh, why would one of the world's largest financial institutions based in the US, you know, pick little old blended perspectives? Well, in my opinion, uh, we would do a call with a customer and we would introduce our credentials and, 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 and they know that we're a platinum partner of Atlassian. So we, we're already coming with a lot of credibility, which is, what, which is really a very important part of the whole reseller process. When you have that, that, that authenticity that a, a company like Atlassian gives you, but then they'll look around, then they'll look at your presence online, they'll look at your website, they'll look at the depth, they'll look at, you know, uh, are they, you know, are they experts in things? And we were, we were very, very prolific in terms of posting materials, leveraging Mars, um, you know, we, we built, we, we worked very hard on our branding simplified uh, our branding um, so that we could just pound the home that blended perspectives was the biggest player you know we were i'd say we punched across uh, punched above our weight there you know i simplified the logo for instance uh, we had a squiggle and blended perspectives but the squiggle and blended perspectives would um, on an electronic basis meant blended perspectives name wasn't as large and so we just got rid of the squiggle. And so we would just, you know, relentlessly, you know, get out there and, 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 and shamelessly build the brand in any way we possibly could on, in the belief, you know, that, that when customers started thinking about who they wanted to do business with, that this would help us, would help us. And it certainly did. At what point did you start to think about the, the value of blended perspectives? Because presumably in the very beginning, when you, when you bought in, you had a valuation done. Do you recall what the formula that the external evaluator used? Was it a multiple of revenue or ARR or EBITDA? Like, yeah. Do you remember what their, yeah. their multiple was? It, it was industry standard multiple of net of, of adjusted EBITDA. Um, do you recall what that multiple was or what is the industry standard multiple in MSP and they manage services companies? What, what's the adjusted EBITDA multiple? I, you know, I, I, I just can't say. I mean, I, I've, I've talked to other people about, you know, what seems to be going on in the industry now, which is sort of three, four, five, six times. Um, you know, the sale that we made was in, well in excess of that. Um, um, mm-hmm. when, when we, the reason why this all started was because essentially there's a platform play going on in, in, in our space. Um, we, we were approached a number of times by other companies wanting to consolidate in, in our space. Uh, and, and it was, it, there's a feeding frenzy going on right now still. Um, and it's a two level, two, two layered play. So a venture capital company or a private equity company comes in and buys one of us and then says, okay, if I buy, say, three, I can get a much better multiple on the three. So I, I think, you, you know, 
we we were watching closely the um, the space in terms of our competition being being acquired, and so we said, well, if if, if everybody else is selling, <laughs> let's sell ourselves. And um, and so you know I'm uh, you know I'm not a spring chicken. If I was twenty years younger, perhaps I would have have have, have stuck it out. Uh, but you know, no one wants to be still standing when the music stops, right? So uh, that that was that was really the driver, and and we were successful. When you say still standing when the music stops, you sent there was this private equity fueled consolidation of Atlassian resellers, mm-hmm. and if you didn't get on that train, you you stood to be the one independent company fighting against this giant uh, amalgam of private equity fueled competitors. Well, that's that, true. That what you mean I mean, it, it's a double, it, it, there were two, there are two factors. One, obviously you don't want to miss out. Um, and two, you don't want to be up against much larger competition. All of a sudden, you know, the, the two, at least one of the companies that we would see a lot in the Canadian space had just received a, a, a huge whack of venture capital and and you know we're much larger all of a sudden, um, and so you know that that's not a great thing either. Miles, what proportion of your revenue at this time in you know kind of call it twenty twenty one twenty twenty two this that sort of era? And I'm just looking for ballpark numbers would have been recurring. Well, uh, yeah. So we we would have. We, I'll just take you through the different types of revenue we have, and yeah, talk about great. the model. Um, and and this is an interesting question because it 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 points to one of the key things that 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 I did, um, uh, as, which I also believe is it, it, it was in, important for our success, and that's the forecasting. Um, so the way that the, the the software business works for us is that you know customers typically renew once a year or sometimes uh, once every two years. And in fact, <laughs> because sometimes they renew every two years, you, we, you see a dip in our revenue. Uh, but re- revenue is, is a little misleading in terms of the, the success of the business because our, our total sales you know, would, isn't, isn't what we, we take, we're taking home. We're only taking a small percentage of, of, of those total sales. But nevertheless, that we we were able to establish that that obviously they would come back every year, and that we had a ninety five ninety six percent renewal rate. And so we, with one hundred and twenty customers, it dawned on me that still those renewals would be worth quite a bit. And so we painstakingly built a forecast where we took every single one of those customers and we mapped out for five years, you know, what what this would mean. We, you know, I, I built a, a kind of sophisticated model, hired a CFO who was very strong in this area, and she was wonderful. Uh, you know, whereas before I had a kind of not so great spreadsheet, which which tended not to be updated as, as often as it ought to be. You know, uh, we made this a kind of critical part of our operation where, you know, the sales team, despite some groaning, um, would would have to update the forecast we used jira actually to do that uh, it was very successful mm. people don't realize what you can do with jira um, we, we we basically you know for instance in a consulting business what you really need to know is when is the money coming in 
And uh, we, we sort of, we realized that actually the consulting work that we were doing and even new sales to old customers started to actually look like a formula because we already had 120 customers. We, we did a, an analysis and it, it seemed to be that we would always get extra business from the, these customers because there was enough of them. The probability was somebody would wake up one day and say, I want to buy this or I want to upgrade that or I need some help doing an implementation. And so we, we, were, we were able to get to a fine art, kind of what, uh, what the steady pace of the business looked like over the next, say, three years, just because we had a book. Um, and then we said, well, what happens when we win a new customer? And so we, we, we analyzed what's the value of a new customer. And we were able then to add that to our forecast. So we were then only needing to figure out what is, what does our new customer growth rate look like? Uh, and so that new customer growth rate literally would roll right into our forecast. And um, in terms of the, the process of acquisition, uh, the, the, the buyer was extremely impressed with our forecasting approach. We, we never had any questions as to the validity of, of, of whether the, the, the company would grow in the way that we were saying, because it was just really well, well, um, well elaborated. Uh, what was your top line growth forecast? What was your top line growth rate projection? Like, what were you what were you projecting to grow top line? Um, I think we were somewhere in the region of uh, you know twenty percent. Got it. And then in terms of the revenue, so you had these contracts with these one hundred and twenty customers that renewed either annually or every other year. Uh, and they were renewing at a very high clip rate, ninety six percent, something in that neighborhood. So that so that became sort of a base of of contracted revenue, effectively. And then you added to that new contracts over time to to get growth. Um, so that's a base of revenue. Did you also have one time implementation revenue, where it would be a you know a one off project where there'd be revenue that would be you know just one off in nature? Uh, yes, they're all like that. Typically, uh, we did have some support contracts mm -hmm. that were sort of, you know, long term. But but what what you what we what we were able to realize by studying the past, looking very closely at the past, what, what made this month, you know, how did how, what what kind of caused us to have this level of business performance? We realized that that with 120 customers. Uh, even for consulting, the, the probability was high that a certain amount of consulting would happen. You know, I so, so basically we would say, okay, you know, X hundred thousand dollars worth of consulting just is going to happen. And um, So it wasn't contracted revenue. It was forecasted, but because of the accuracy of the forecast and the, and the data you had in, uh, of the past, you felt, and the number of customers, 120 would obscure out any weird anomalies among one, mm -hmm. you could fairly accurately predict the future. That's right. That's right. The, the, the more it. we studied the past, the better the forecast looked in the future. That's correct. That's helpful for sure. Um, so you're, let's get into this. So in the industry, your own transaction in the early, early days, uh, and then you, you'd sort of had this sense of what was 
the industry, you go to conferences, they were kind of thinking three to six times adjusted EBITDA was where, you know, an MSP or managed service provider would typically trade. Is that right? Yeah. Got it. Uh, and so you thought, if I'm, if I'm reading this correctly, you thought because of Mars synthesis, the accuracy and forecasting, the size of your company, that you might be able to do better than that. You felt like you could maybe get. Yes. I, well, I think remember that it's context specific, sector specific. Atlassian mm-hmm. is very hot, very fast growing. When you look at when you look at us and our growth, you, all you need to do is compare it to how how's Atlassian doing. It's easy to value. Mm-hmm. We were strategic to to these uh, companies, uh, and so I, I just think I think you have to look at you have to look at the, the context of which business you're in. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah for sure, and it, yeah, Atlassian is obviously a very a very exciting company. Growing quickly, you mentioned offline, and again, we don't have to get into what the number was, but uh, you mentioned that you had a number that you you were hoping to achieve through this exit. Maybe walk us through your thinking there. H- how did you? You know, I think people would be curious to know. I've heard everything from it was just a goal of mine to have that number. I can't put a finger on why I wanted that number to we did, you know, five valuations of the company. We have exhaustive research. So that's the fair number. Or I wanted to buy a boat and <laughs> therefore I needed that amount of money. Like, how did you get to your number that you wanted for the company? Well, again, we paid very close attention to what was going on around us. So we knew some people were talking to us informally about, you know, what they were selling their businesses for. So we knew that. What were you hearing? Just, just that, just that the multiples were great, and and Double yes, I, I, I had an I had a number in mind, um, which was a factor of you know retiring, some some personal projects that I wanted to uh, wanted to do, um, and so, you know, we we we. I came to the conclusion that best to just tell these guys that, that wanted to buy us, this is the number. Um, and then one of them sort of shocked me by agreeing. But at, in the middle of all of that process, Martin, and again, this is why we, we talked about, you know, Martin and, and the partnership is, you know, uh, Martin has come through for, came through for me in very uh, clutch periods. Martin suggested that we, we, we look at getting an M&A advisor and I was probably on track to just, you know, trying to do it all myself since I'd done everything myself, you know. Um, but, you know, the more I thought about it, uh, the more it started to make some sense. We didn't really shop around, uh, shop it around much. Uh, we met with um, the people from Crosby's, uh, David Fiddler, and um, the chemistry was good. You know, they basically said, yes, we are going to take a piece of the transaction, but, you know, we'll sell the company for much more than you're going to sell it for. So what do you care? And uh, they, their model was- What did was they think the, it could be worth? Did pardon? they give you any sense of what they thought it could be worth? And the, again, multiples of you. I don't think we've spoken what your EBITDA was. So, you know, we can avoid talking about what your EBITDA was, but did you have, did they give you a sense of whether six times was fair? Did they get, did they, it sounds like you were hearing some sort of double digit multiples of EBITDA. Well, scuttled I, that in the industry. Again, you know, John, I told them what, what I wanted. 
And I said, you know, they were skeptical a bit to start. But I said, look, this is a hot space. Go, go make some phone calls. You decide if you want to be in. Because um, they, they, so you told your MA guys what you wanted yeah. and said, that's the number. That's the number. And yeah. And, and I'm not going to get you to tell me what multiple of no, that was. No, you're not. Um, would, would, would you tell me if it was more than, like, would you tell me it was double digit multiple of that? No. No, I'm not. Okay. I'm not going to assume it was, but that's just allowed. my assumption. It's not allowed. But but you know, I, I what I will say is that you know, Crosby did a great job of packaging up the business. Of course, it was accelerated by the fact that we had a great forecast, um, uh, which they also thought was you know very critical. Plus all the Mars and everything else, uh, they put a shiny mm-hmm. package together, and they shamelessly went out and sold. You know, put us on the block. And, uh, you know, they knew exactly how to do that. They, they elicited multiple bidders. Um, and I can, you know, I can assure everybody that that, that, that process for us was extremely successful. Um, I, 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 I have no, never had a regret, you know, in dealing with them. And they've, they've also been extremely helpful post-transaction because there are some quite critical things that need to happen in a post-transaction scenario as well. Yeah, I want to get to those. So uh, before I do, though, just... What was the most surprising thing they did in the packaging of your company? And I'm really emphasizing the word surprising. You're a sophisticated business person. You've been in this industry for a long time. Not much gets past you, I assume. And yet, I'm assuming there were still things in the way they chose to take you to market or position your company that were like, huh, I wonder why they're doing that. Yeah. Well, so, you know... The trick, the trick with uh, the trick with this is to is to make sure that your EBITDA is as net EBITDA is as big as it possibly can be. And what what these guys are good at doing is is looking at the, your business and saying, well, okay, all, all that money that we're paying, you know, these guys or isn't needed in the longer term, uh, and so we can adjust that EBITDA uh, to be a larger number. Every penny on that EBITDA is critical, right? And so, I'd say that that side of it is is uh, is key. Uh, walking you through the process, uh, nothing can prepare you psychologically for what <laughs> what you're about to experience. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's a really kind of critical thing to 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 be able to sell your business and run your business at the same time. You know, uh, you know, making sure that it's the whole process stays on the rails as well. Mm-hmm. You know, if were you and Martin, were you and Martin aligned on the value of the company? Yeah. Did did yes? Are you similar ages or no? He's ten years younger than me. Um, okay, but you know, how did that play a role? Um, I, I I don't I don't think it really did. Martin strategically understood where we were at, that, that this was a platform play that, you know, it, we wanted to make sure that we would, we all had a seat and the music stopped and, and, and he was quite happy with that. You know, I think he, now he, now he's got to figure out what he wants to do. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, uh, I don't think that was an issue. Um, Offline, we talked about a change of ownership clause. Can you walk me through what, how that impacted the transaction? Right. So 
things that lessons lessons I learned uh, about about this process, you know, uh, especially as a reseller, uh, one of the hardest, one of the key things to do is to make sure you're the guy who's officially the vendor of record in a company, and that can be that can be all a big process all by itself, and is is part of what a company is buying you for. So we would, you know, variously, the sales guys would send me the, you know, the reselling agreement or the vendor specific agreements, and we'd have to jump through hoops and everything else. And ultimately, I would have to decide what are, what are these people asking for? Is it is it doable? So, for instance, you know, sometimes they, they want a lot of insurance and this kind of thing. One of the things I didn't pay any attention to at all <laughs> were clauses around change of ownership. So we had like a hundred yeah. contracts that were all in our wiki. We 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 were great documenters, uh, but we weren't systematic enough in in extracting from those documents, for instance, the things that really mattered, which was change of ownership provisions. And there are two types of uh, provisions that you want to be watching for. One is just notification, which is okay, but you still got to do it. Uh, and then the second is um, actually getting permission from a customer to to do change of ownership. And you know, I, I'm so in a couple of cases, couple of cases I wish I had pushed back on 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 that. Uh, and there's a few, you know, you need to give. It's a catch twenty two as well because unless the deal takes place, you um, don't really want to tell your customer that you're looking for a change of ownership. And of course, sometimes these deals yeah. don't happen. You know, they, they don't go through. I'm so glad you raised this. So I, I want to summarize what I've heard and make sure my listeners hear this and, and sort of put an underline over this point. You have large clients, many banks and large integrated companies that have these SLAs or service level agreements, these contracts essentially that they put in place with vendors. And there's a bunch of boilerplate language in there. And one of the clauses in many of those giant corporations that they ask for as a kind of a blanket uh, default position is a change of ownership clause coming in two flavors. One, you're obliged to notify, hey, we've changed, the ownership has changed. Two, that you have to seek their permission before a change of ownership would, would take place. Otherwise, the contract would be nullified effectively, as I understand it. What, yeah. what were the ramifications if, if you did not choose to tell them that they would effectively be able to walk away from the contract obligations? Yes, potentially. I mean, as it happened, the, yeah, it's just a formality. Uh, yeah. I think again, it's we, one of those things you can probably get. You probably get uh, out of a contract if you if you you know if you're thinking that within ten years, within twenty years, you're thinking of selling your company. You can start scrubbing those things out, changing it to uh, you know notification as opposed to permission up front, yeah. so that ten years down the road you won't live to regret it or have to do what you did, which it sounds like scramble at the last minute, going to all these old clients saying, hey. Can you please waive this? Yeah, yeah. But How we, we, didn't have, we didn't have too many. Uh, we didn't have too many problems uh, on the change of notification. And I think again, one thing to to be to be wary of is who are you and what is your relationship with the with the customer. So if you're a unique supplier to that customer, so you're not just a reseller like we were, because the customer could just pick somebody else to do the reselling and not a big deal. But if you're a unique provider to that customer with a unique product, I imagine the customer will have quite a few things to say about a change of ownership. So that's that's just how I would 
you know, how I would look at it. Uh, and the way that I would have gone about it is I would have said, okay, every time a contract comes in through the door, what are the five things or six things that we actually need to properly document here? Change of ownership, um, insurance, that kind of thing. And we would have had a big table and we'd been able to go, okay, we've got to tell these 20 people uh, this one's a problem or or we would have tried to have, uh, change some of those things, you know, uh, proactively. Got it. So let's go back to the sales. So Crosby, you engage Crosby, they package it up, great book, sim, whatever. They're taking it to market. Do you tell your employees? What, like what, what if anything, have you told your employees at this point? Uh, nothing. <laughs> nothing. Are you no, worried it's, that they're going to find it's out? Got, it's, it's, it's got to remain confidential. And, and it's got to remain confidential because, uh, uh, you know, first of all, the deal could may not happen, in which case nothing's happened. So, you know, uh, it's we we did we did have some uh, some of the key staff who were part of the process of helping me sell the company were 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 looked after, and um, you know, and I do I do have some thoughts about uh, kind of how we got the business going and and some of those key staff and how they played a role in in our success as well. Uh, so yeah, so a, a, a small number of people. Uh, were aware, uh, and that's it. Got it. How did that feel for you as the CEO to have this giant secret <laughs> that you were kind of walking around with? Yeah, it's not easy. I mean, it's it's even a case that you know you can't even really tell your friends. Um, you know, I I my wife was helpful <laughs> in 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 reminding me that you know. This is just something that is not not to be discussed. Um, you know, in terms of the staff, I, I was back and forth on this one. So, you know, I thought to myself, well, you know, the, the hardest part about this is that we had built uh, a, a great culture. Uh, you know, in terms of building a culture, the, the culture does play a very si significant role in the success of the business. And it did for you? For, 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 for us, it, it did because of our high retention rate. Uh, so, okay. you know, if your retention rate is a, a very high in a, our game, then it's, you, 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 you're not, you're not, you know, paying ridiculous amounts of money to headhunters to go fill holes in your professional ranks because, because people don't want to leave. They actually love the place. And, um, so you had this great culture, high retention. Yeah. And we did that. We did that through all sorts of tricks and, and things. Mm -hmm. um, the moment it looked like the pandemic was on. I sent everybody home and said, you don't have to come to the office, forget it. You, we were well ahead of the curve there. And it turned out to be one of the most inspired things because um, so um, many people actually didn't want to live in the centre of Toronto and they were allowed, they were able to go to, you know, an hour north or two hours north, buy a much nicer house, have a much higher quality of life. Um, in one quick decision, you know, we were essentially giving, giving the staff a much nicer lifestyle and um, then we never we never we we just shut the office all together and, and said we'll forever be a virtual company and and again i think that was very popular uh we did <clears throat> uh monthly cocktail parties um no, was it monthly? no every two weeks we had a cocktail party and then we started bringing in entertainers for those cocktail parties uh, uh kind of entertainment you know comedians uh all sorts of things like that 
we started spending money on talent. Uh, we would still get together in person, but uh, you know, we we put a lot of effort into into the culture. And what that also meant was that anybody who didn't fit with our culture, uh, we weeded them out very quickly. Uh, how, how did you choose to eventually tell them that you'd sold the business to Contigix? Uh, we told them on a conference call, and they were upset a bit. Um, but you know, many of them are, are, are certified professionals. So Atlassian has a certification process. Uh, they they get very very well certified. You know, uh, they're able to go work for anybody they want to, and they're very high demand in in our space. And that's part of the reason why the culture um, is key. Um, we we had a terrific uh, project management office PMO uh, leader. Um, she really was kind of uh, the mother hen uh, of keeping it. But I'd be curious to know, how did you explain the rationale? Like, you know, like what, what were the words yeah. that came out of it? I've heard from a lot of founders, this is the, the hardest conversation that they've ever had in business. It, it is. It is standing difficult. up in front of their clients, yeah. their customers. It is saying, difficult. Uh, um, I don't know if you, have you seen that baseball movie, uh, the one about uh, – the team that was statistically, he, he hired a statistician, right? Yeah, Moneyball. Yeah, Moneyball. Brad Pitt. Do you remember? Do you remember when um, they he he was asked to to let a player go in a trade? Yeah, and he said, "How do I how do I go about doing this? Like, what what is the what is the me- me- methodology?" And he says, don't, yeah. m- don't muck about. Just sit them down, <clears throat> tell them this is what's happened." you know, and, you know, and things are going to be whatever they're going to be. Great. Right. And so, you know, all our staff knew that there were acquisitions going on all over the place. They could see it. I mean, it was announced regularly. Uh, I'd say every three or four days, there was another acquisition, you know, and I, I, I got on a call with the, with the company and I simply told them, I said, you know, um, Martin and I, are exiting. I'm not a spring chicken anymore. And, you know, the, the opportunity has presented itself uh, for us to exit the company. The, uh, uh, the, the acquirer uh, has made a, per- you know, I, I've actually selected this uh, acquirer, uh, not, not, wasn't the best bid, uh, but they committed to keeping 100% of the staff. Um, and so I'm, you know, I, I, that we felt that was the best option that was available. And, um, yeah. How many offers did you get on the company? Like formal LOIs? Uh, three. Three. And what was the percentage difference between the three? Can you share like plus or minus? I mean, it sounds like they would trade in relatively it was close. small range. Yeah, it was, it was relatively close. close. Yeah. And do, and do you think that's because your M&A advisor, I mean, you'd been very clear up front, hey, this is the number I need. Did yeah. you get the sense that your M and A advisor had sort of tipped the market off to saying like you got to be in this kind of ballpark? I suspect so. <laughs> I suspect yeah, it was. You don't know, but I don't know. I don't know for sure. I mean, I suspect it was kind of like a Q and A. Am I wasting my time, David? If I offer this, David might have said yes, <laughs> and so they might have gone back and forth. You know, but that's the sort of thing that's great because they, you know, all that. All that dirty work is done by the M&A guys. Uh, we can stay out of that kind of side of it. And so you, you said you didn't accept the 
highest offer, although there was not a huge difference between the three. One reason you chose the highest offer was they they said they would retain 100% of the employees. What else attracted you by the offer that you accepted? What else was well, so attractive? In these, in these sorts of deals, what you're going to see, uh, what we saw, uh, uh, a, a different flavors of how, how, how things happen. So a part of the deal would be cash, you know, cash up front. Uh, another part of the deal might be a note um, where they pay you out over a period of time. Some of it's going to be holdbacks. Uh, there was actually a holdback on me um, to stay, uh, but it, it transpired that the business, that the, the, the acquisition was so successful and things were going so well uh, that they didn't need me to stay. Uh, and so that was fine. Um, so and then, to be and then clear, the, the final, and sorry, in the final part of that, it would be say equity in the new venture. Got it. And so, so there was cash, there uh, was a vendor take back or effectively a, a portion that was financed over time. Yeah. There was a hold back and then you were asked to roll some equity into the new editor. Yeah. And so when you look at offers, you have to look at what suits you. So what suits me, what suited me was more cash up front. Yeah. Yeah. If you've got yeah. a higher appetite for risk, for instance, um, or you're younger, you might want some, some, some different scenario. Um, were you aligned with Martin on those items? Because he was 10 years younger. Was he in the same camp as in, in terms of the proportions he was comfortable with cash? Well, I can't, I can't, I can't really go into any of the specifics here, but, but what I can say is that the, the deal, uh, the Contigix guys were very sensitive and they were clever. And so they structured, they uh, structured my deal slightly differently than Martin's so that Martin got what he wanted and I got what I wanted. And, and as I understand it, that's a little bit unusual in, in the industry uh, in these deals, um, but all credit to Contigix and, and the various finance and the various advisors who, who were able to, to do that. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes, that makes good sense. And when I think of a holdback, it's not a term I've heard before per se. When I think of a holdback, it's usually like an amount in escrow to, to make sure that there were you know, That's right. no yeah. problem. When you say a holdback, did, did you mean like an earnout where you had to stay and meet goals no. or was it simply like tied to your tenure as an employee of the company? No, just you were a, asked to stay on. Well, yeah. The, the whole, sorry, when I say holdback, I just mean, you know, an amount of money that would, would be would be returned if everything is as advertised. Got it. Yeah, yeah. Also, I've heard that referred to as escrow. Maybe it's similar. Yeah, I'm not a lawyer, so maybe it's something similar. But I just wanted to st distinguish between an earnout where you were kind of being asked to jump on the you know the hamster wheel and try to hit a goal in three years, yeah. or that's not what this. Was. One this was, one thing was, that I I would say was a lesson learned. Um, mm -hmm. If I go back in time. <laughs> Uh, and it may not be all that relevant to to your U.S. Uh, listeners, uh, mm -hmm. except insofar as they do business in other countries. Um, we were doing business in the U.S., and we had taken the stand that it was our customers' responsibility to collect the taxes. Uh, that's not necessarily how things are. And I would say, if you're doing business in Canada, for instance, um, and you're you're just trying to 
offload that responsibility to your Canadian customers, you might have some problems there. Uh, That's you know, super good. I, 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 yeah. I, I would definitely have, have, have been, you know, gone after our customers for taxes from the get-go, I think. Yeah, yeah. Very, very good advice. And again, another reason that having an M&A focused or at least a, an accountant who's done lots of corporate finance work is really important and, and that you know, you, you've got an accountant with you and a, and a set of advisors who, uh, and I, I just wanna really reemphasize the importance of having advisors who understand mergers and acquisitions. And that's maybe different. I, oftentimes the lawyer uh, who incorporated your company, who did that you know, employee agreement 10 years ago is not the same lawyer you need to mm -hmm. advise you on. Well, I, I can tell you, I I can tell you the weird. story about the M&A lawyers. Yeah, please do. Um, yeah. So I we had terrific uh, counsel, a terrific co corporate counsel. Um, I, I very much liked him and Carl um, Belkamp. And I, I tried to see whether he, you know. I said, let's let's see if we can get you to do this uh, deal. Uh, but but you know, <clears throat> David Fiddler and the, and the guys from Crosby were like, you got to get a corporate M and A lawyer. You just have to. And I, I knew how much it was going to cost, and I was <laughs> kicking and streaming into this. Hundreds of thousands. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. Um, and uh, I guess what I decided to do was go with it, uh, but bring them in at the very last minute. So the trick, the trick with that, you know, is that you, you get your own guy to do uh, as much of this sort of legwork as you can. The the the, the corporate M and A guys, you know, they're quick learners. They, they don't need a ton of runway, and they'll only bill. They'll just bill you an awful lot. So you kind of want to sort of say, okay, we're gonna. There's a deal document, uh, and there's there, there are a whole bunch of things that that you have to testify to. I call it the confessional. And and basically the reps and warranties and the legal yeah, reps and warranties the confession on you know and and there's a sort of strategy for having to deal with it. it you know just you can represent that you know some things and you just can't represent other things because the, the reps and warranties are endless. I mean they, they literally want your children, your family, everything, and you just have to sort of say no which ones you can say no to and which ones you're just going to say whatever. And, you know, all of that process is something those M&A lawyers know very, very well. And, and, and we were being acquired by a company, you know, that had multiple sets of lawyers. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I just recommend you, you, you go down that road, uh, line them up uh, and only and, and give them a start line as close to the finish line <laughs> as you can and time box the amount of money you spend on them. Uh, Super. Super helpful advice, Miles. When you come to reps and warranties, just maybe walk me through in your own for 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 you, your stage of life, your business, your industry, et cetera. What reps and warranties were you willing to sign off on and say, yes, I will represent that, that we paid our taxes, for example? Although that might be questionable, just given the, the state sales taxes we just referenced. What what things were you not willing to? like sign up like sign up for it's been a while since i did did it uh i i i can remember a flavor of things that that, that really I, I wasn't up for um, you know they'll 
some of these clauses are just catch-alls. Uh, you know, no member of your staff has ever done anything illegal on any level forever. And I'm like, I don't know. Right. Like, you know, I just, no, I'm not saying that, you know. Uh, yeah. Could be, you know, and, and, and you say, you know, to my knowledge, I don't, I don't have anybody who's ever done anything bad on my team, but I can't tell you for sure, sure. you know. And, and so what you want yeah. to do is you just want to sort of look at it just through the lens of, as a business person, be practical. Yeah. Like just say to yourself, is that something you really would commit to? And what would be the implications of, of you committing to that? Like what they're trying to do is essentially create a, a hermetically sealed uh, arrangement where there's no risk to them on, about anything and they can see you for all sorts of things. Um, and it's not the buyer who decide who puts this forward. It's the M&A people, the, the, the lawyers. They say, this is a standard template contract. Sign your life away. Yeah. And then there are a fair number of things that are okay, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And again, another benefit of using an M&A lawyer is that they'll know what, quote, market is and what is reasonable to ask for and what is not reasonable. And so they will advise yeah. you. You're never going to get them to change this. And they'll also say this is a total overreach. And <laughs> like you're, they're way out of bounds here. That's right. You can get them and, to move. And there are some very critical stages in a deal. Um, so, for instance, you know, at, at the point of transaction, there's going to be a networking capital calculation which in and, in and of itself is a form of holdback. Um, you pretty well want to explain sure. that. Explain what a networking capital calculation is for folks it's, and and how that. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly the the technical definition of it. You probably know better how to describe it, John, than I do. Um, it's an amount. It's basically, I understand, it's a certain amount of money that needs to be in the bank account when you hand over the keys. You don't get to scrape out all the cash. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's you've got AR, and there, you know, you could make the case that that. You owe, you have that. That should be yours yeah. if it's collectible. And there's retained earnings. This question of like, well, we'll give this rainy day fund that you've had for three years is about it. Could be a lot of money in some businesses' case. Like, who owns that? Exactly. It's it's and it's the cash that basically. And then they do a true up ninety days after, which then says, was that right or was that wrong? And and so the networking capital calculation is usually very technical. And it's usually based on historic uh, numbers. You know, I try as I could to, to get into the detail with it. You know, I never could quite understand it. But but one thing I knew is that, you know, the Crosby guys were on my team. And and when when these discussions took place with the, the, the buyer and the, the, the M&A people, and, you know, it, it, it was quite clear, you know, that, 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 that whatever was the outcome was the right outcome for us. I, I felt safe with it. I think if I didn't have an advisor who really knew this space, I would feel quite yeah. nervous about about this, you know. So for me, that was one of the critical um, elements uh, that you have to deal with. Yeah, great, great, uh, great points. Um, this has just been amazing, full of wisdom and knowledge and, and, and so forth. Are you up for a quick lightning round before I let you go? Just a couple of uh, sure. questions that uh, we can finish up with. What was the slimiest trick that an acquirer tried to play on you during the process of selling your company? You said you got three offers, you talked to lots of people. What was the slimiest sort of uh, trick or scheme that you managed to avoid? Um, I don't know that I'd call it slimy, uh, but I, I will say when, in, in, in my experience, um, that 
there's a st- set of stages in a deal. One is where there's a presumed uh, value of the deal, which is in the, the letter. Um, it says, you know, this will offer you this much money, you know, blah, 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 and all this sort of stuff. Letter of intent. Yeah, letter yeah. of intent. But what then happens is there's a, um, there's a stage where they value, where they confirm the value of your company. Um, I think in our case, trying to get them to actually formally agree with the valuation took quite a long time. And it sort of dawned on me that actually it was never going to be in their interest to ever say say what it was. Uh, because once they've, once they've confirmed value, then we have to move quickly to the contract. Uh, so, so I think, you know, taking my time again, I think we might have been a little harder aligned. The, the other thing about confirmation of value is that it's tied typically to your um, exclusivity period, right? So it's usually 30 or 60 days um, after the, 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 the letter of intent. Uh, it expires, which means you could then go to the market and, and find somebody else to buy your company. So, you know, I, I think what what looking back, you just need to be mindful of kind of holding everybody's feet to the fire around confirmation of value. It's it's, it's not a slimy like- thing because it's it's just a negotiating tactic, right? And, you know. Yeah, that's actually not something I've heard of before. I, I I have heard. I just want to dig in. So you're you're saying that in the letter of intent, the that you signed that had no shop clause or an exclusivity period, they gave you what they their offer. Like it was a, it was a, it was a number, and that part of their due diligence uh, was to confirm the value of the business in their eyes. Yeah, and and okay. All the buyers now are doing quite a large amount of due diligence. According to, you know, the Crosby guys, it was more due diligence they had than they had seen in the past. Uh, so. Yeah, the entrepreneur's proctology exam, I've heard it referred to as <laughs> yeah. in a crude sort of way. What was the lowest emotional point that you reached during the process of selling your company? Mm. Lowest emotional point. Uh, I think. I think it was. You know. I think it was uh, the whole business of the staff. Like it's. It's as I as I mentioned to you. You know. It is like having that conversation of trading a player. But it, but it, but psychologically and emotionally, uh, leading up to that, I think it's it's very hard. Uh, you know. That that's probably. You know. The hardest. The hardest thing. Highest emotional point? Highest. Oh, I think probably there's a there's a day, uh, the last day of the deal, you know, where everybody is on a conference call. Could be thirty people, literally, and wow. and this call is basically uh, was headed up by our lawyer uh, Duncan Snyder at Gallings, who is coordinating with their chief lawyer from, and basically they do around the the table, like, okay, we're settled on this. Uh, Joe Bloggs, do you have any concerns? Is this a go? And, and you, you go right around everybody uh, and then they say, okay. And, and, and then suddenly all the money starts moving. That's kind of like crazy. That's a crazy kind of high point, of course, because of all the work that's gone into it. And you, you suddenly are relieved that this thing has actually happened. <laughs> 
What was it like with you and Martin at that period of time? And I mean, if you, because I mean, a lot, you know, I, I'm sure you each brought something to the table, but I think it's fair to say you led much of the growth and you were a heavy piece of the, 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 the success of the business. Did, did, did you ever sort of receive acknowledgement with Martin or that, you know, thanks that, that you showed up at that conference uh, all those years ago? Was there any of that, did that conversation ever happen? Oh, yes. I mean, um, in, in a deal like this, one of the things that happens very early in the process is that there's an agreement as to who the designated person is for the transaction, uh, just so there's no, there are no misunderstandings. You know, I, th- I think it would be fair to say that Martin had, had, had a great deal of trust in me mm-hmm. and, and a lot of maturity to say, okay, Miles, I trust you to, to look after our best interests. I mean, after all, why, why would, if it's 50-50, why would I screw myself? So, you know, I think that, that that's, that's the case. Um, you know, uh, you know, he's always been very supportive of me, and it's one of the reasons why, why I was very happy with 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 the arrangement. You know, got it, got it. Yeah. Um, as you prepared for the exit, it sounded like you you definitely leaned heavily on your M and A professional Crossbeam Company. Um, Were there any other resources that you turned to that you could switch our listeners on to? Uh, that they might find helpful, a, a book, a TED Talk, a YouTube th- channel, like anything that, that that you use to kind of educate yourself about M&A? Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I guess uh, knowing, you know, knowing what's going to happen uh, in sequence is helpful. Uh, so, you know, make sure that, like I, I kind of did know what was going to happen, but still, still the entirety of these events, you know, such as the networking capital and the deal day and the, the number of reps and warranties, still the entirety of these things kind of overwhelms you a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I did hire a very, very good CFO um, and she was fantastic. And I would never have been able to get through it without, without her. So. You know, my general take on it is that you know the the higher the quality forecast and planning um, and 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 help um, around all of that, the the better. I think what I would say about YouTube and the tools and everything else is that that it's it's not always easy to know how legitimate the information is. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know how you can end up getting too many pieces of pieces of advice and and go sideways. Um, you know, your advisor who's going to be successful if you're successful has done the deals many times. Uh, just ask, ask them questions. Just, uh, just stay. I was in, I would, David and I spoke to each other probably six times a day, you know, and <laughs> sometimes he was awake at two o'clock in the morning and I was awake at two o'clock in the morning and we would, we would talk about things. I mean, it's, wow. it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a very, uh, intense, uh, very, very intense process. What did you buy yourself to c- celebrate the, the win? Give me a trophy that you, uh, <laughs> that you bought to commemorate. Well, you know, I nearly bought, I nearly bought a car. I nearly bought an expensive car. Um, what did you have your eyes on? Uh, I'm not going to say. 
expensive. Oh, come on, Miles. It's all between friends. You can tell me. Well, I looked at a Bentley. But you wow. Know, okay, that is a fancy car. One, one of the things that I would say, though, is that, uh, look, I didn't, I didn't in the end, I didn't in the end make the purchase. Uh, and I think probably there are a number of things that I nearly did, and I'm glad I didn't do them. I think sometimes you think you need to buy yourself a trophy because you deserve one only to realize that that's kind of silly and you're just doing it as a as a, a pride you know thing it doesn't make any sense to do it uh, so I, you know I, I in the end i ended up with a new set of golf clubs uh, and and you know we Good have for you. we have some big housing projects you know that that i want want to to do um, what kind of clubs did you buy well i i i i Spent the winter at Modern Golf, which is a uh, one of those golf simulator places, and uh, they're very neutral about which clubs are best to use. And um, a fantastic data-driven assessment of of your golf swing is, is just unbelievable. And they send you in a file of of your performance. And uh, so I tried everything, uh, but compared to my T two hundreds. The Mizunos were just hot metal, were just like incredible. Like I was getting 30 yards extra and more accurate. So it's it's a data-led sales process like Mars. And uh, I, I loved it. And so, you know, I'm there spending more time on the golf. So you're swinging yeah. Mizuno. Yeah. Mizuno. And ping, ping drivers. All right. <laughs> ping drivers, Mizuno. Uh, what do they call them? I don't hot play metal. golf, so I don't even know what. Metal, thank you. Hot metal. There's a whole new language I got to learn if I'm going to get into golf at some point. Uh, Miles, I'm so grateful for you taking the time to share this story and some of the the kind of inside baseball on the deal itself, which was super helpful, I think, for for me and all of our listeners. Um, tell me what you're doing now and and where people can reach you if they wanted to reach out and say hi. On I'm assuming LinkedIn is the best place, but I mean, you tell me tell me yeah. where people can find you. Yes, I'm on LinkedIn, um, and uh, you can you can email me if you want at miles m i l e s at faulknerconsulting dot com. So that's f a u l k n e r consulting all one word dot com. Um, you know, I'm I, I I've taken it easy since since the deal went down, uh, but but starting to you know bring my head up for air, and you know I I, I look back at the process of building the company, which I uh, was a passion. Uh, of mine and all the experience that I've had, whether it's in HR, marketing, sales, how to be a reseller, and also then the sales process. I'm interested in helping other companies go through that successful uh, journey, you know, either as a director or as an advisor. You know, I'm I'm told that quite a lot of uh, early stage companies do look for for for, for directors, um, but on a sort of a, a almost a tiny bit, bit of equity basis because the cash is, is tight. I'm, I'm interested in those sorts of arrangements. Uh, I appreciate you sharing that, Miles, and we'll put all of that, including your email address and contact information uh, at builttosell.com. Miles, thanks for doing this. All right. My pleasure. Thank you. 
And there you have it for today's episode between John and Miles. If you enjoyed today's episode, then as always, be sure you hit that subscribe button. If you love today's episode and want to help support this podcast, I encourage you to head over to Apple Podcasts, where there you can leave a rating and review. You can also watch this full interview at our YouTube channel, which can be found at Built to Sell Radio. Also, a reminder for show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, including couple resources on how to avoid that change of ownership clause, head over to our show notes page, which can be found at Built to Sell Radio. If you know of someone who would be a great fit to be a guest right here on Built to Sell Radio, you can actually nominate them. By heading over to builttosell.com slash nominate, there you'll have the chance to nominate yourself or someone else to be a guest right here on the show with John. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling today's audio engineering, and thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan, and I look forward to talking to you again next week. 